Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week's episode, we have Justin and Lauren. This week, we find out how to use childhood classics to help us better understand the brain, the way it works, and how we comprehend written text. We also find out about some amazing properties of ants that enables them to be immortal, or at least partly immortal. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. We've all read books and seen movies and have them influence our lives in different ways. And what we take out of it is often very different from what our friends might have taken out of it and almost certainly different than what our English teacher took out of it. But it's an interesting part of the way we process things that we see or read. And it just goes to show the amazing way that our brain works in processing information and learning from it. And some fantastic researchers from Carnegie Mellon University have been using a very cherished book to actually help us understand more about the brain and how we learn. So what was going on here, Lauren? What fantastic childhood book did they use and what did we actually learn about the brain? So the book in question, such as we're looking at, was um, a young childhood favourite called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, or as they called it, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I still don't really understand the difference. Well, I think I think it's the fact that Americans we might get confused about the word philosopher and not know what it means, so they went with sorcerer. Which, by the way, as like a thing in Harry Potter, they don't really make a distinction between sorcerers and wizards, but they do for that book. Mysteries. Definite mysteries. So what happened here was um, researchers asked participants to sit in an fMRI machine, which is a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine. Right, so those, um, those big brain scanning machines that you see on House and Grey's Anatomy and the like. Yep, so basically what it measures is the different parts of your brain um, as they activate and things like that. Right, so have you seen those colourful photos where they have the brain and they show things and parts of it lighting up at different times? That's kind of what an fMRI machine produces. So how did they use this fMRI machine and Harry Potter? So what they asked participants to do was to lie in this fMRI machine and get them to read the first chapter of Harry Potter. Um, by doing that, they then looked at the readings that the fMRI was getting to see which parts of the brain was activating while they were reading this first chapter. They did this to determine the meaning of different words and understanding like the relationships between characters, which parts of the brain were activating and understanding those relationships. Right, by, by doing a controlled test with the same passage of text, you're really just stimulating the brain in the same way multiple times and seeing if you can understand which parts of the brain will then light up. So they also did some uh, prediction by analysing all the previous data and said, okay, well, by looking at what everyone else has done, we think that these parts of the brain will light up when people read this passage based on what we've learnt. So what did they actually manage to learn about the brain and the different areas of the brain and how they responded? What they did was from um, the participants reading this passage and were able to generate a model which would predict which parts of the brain light up when reading certain passages. So then they used this model and got the participants to read a different passage. And using that model, they attempted to predict which parts of the brain would light up while they were reading the passage. And they were actually able to do this with about 74% accuracy. Which is really amazing, like, because the brain is such a mysterious thing to be able to actually understand which part is going to correspond to which thing and then use the end results to come back and say, well, what they were actually thinking about at the time is really quite powerful. 
And this really helps us with like understanding the brain and building a like more generalized brain map, which can be really interesting and also really helpful with things like um, learning disabilities and reading disorders, um, such as dyslexia and the recovery of patients whose like speech and understanding of reading has been impaired by certain disorders or strokes. That's right. And it, it also might be able to help you understand why your brain is responding to certain ways or certain things differently. Um, it might mean that your brain is not as well wired up as somebody else's when it comes to uh, different types of comprehension, languages, and so on. Um, and you can observe that from, from some of these maps that you, that you build up for people by looking at whether or not this area is activating as much as it is in other people. I've actually also quite find it quite amazing that they then started to mess around uh, with with what else they could test and analyze on, getting down to emotions or single words and phrases and seeing whether or not they could make predictions based on that. And often often became a lot murkier, right? Um, uh, so you couldn't do a lot of tests like that, but they they did try to explore if you could get more granular rather than a big nice sample of of the uh, this passage of Harry Potter. Um, one of the other things that we've talked about previously in the podcast is doing a similar test, but with drinking water. <laughs> uh, and we've uh, we, there was some interesting studies about that and the brain's response to satisfying the need to feel thirsty, um, which is also another interesting thing we've learned by getting people to do weird things inside fMRI machines. It all goes to say goes to show that um, even though we uh, don't fully understand the brain. Using advanced computer algorithms and machine learning, we can start to build models and predictions for the way the brain works and, in turn, understand it better, which can go on to helping people with all kinds of learning disabilities and neurological conditions. So, I really loved ants as a kid and I used to collect them and pick them up and build ant farms and colonies and, and, and try to investigate and dig them out. And I spent a good period of time when I was about six and seven years old researching heavily ants and conducting science and writing essays because I was a massive nerd. Um, of course, in Queensland where I grew up, we had massive bull ants, which I used to pick up. And when I moved to Victoria, I was very saddened to find that the ants, in fact, were quite small and not really worth playing with. Um, however... My biggest dream was to actually try and find a queen ant because, as you all know, queen ants are the most important part in the colony. The soldier ants will die often protecting the queen, and without a healthy queen to sustain a colony, the colony will fall apart. So what is a queen to do when she has to ensure the royal progenity of her race? How can she keep her line going, and how can she keep the colony surviving? And some fascinating research has been done out of Kyoto University in Japan exactly on this topic, which actually sheds some light into some of the mysteries of the queen ant. So what's going on here, Lauren? So, I mean, usually when you're predicting, like, the reproduction of, like... Um, anything, generally. Anything, That's a biological much. creature that we know. You need two creatures of different sexes to reproduce, to both um, contribute to the genetic composition of the offspring. Right, so generally we understand that um, we need two sets of genetic material um, from two parents, and these parent genetic material combines, and that's how we um, that's how our cells reproduce. Uh, I know you can produce other ways, but that's kind of weird, and I only really know about doing that when you're a, like a single-cell amoeba and you split apart. Spoiler alert, biology is not my strong point. But is that, is that kind of generally how reproduction works in a really broad sense, Lauren? <laughs> in a really broad sense, yes. Um, 
as well as reproducing so that you just like split in half, there's also other ways to reproduce without um, without having another parent there to create an offspring with. And this is actually what we found that the queen ant does. So what does the queen ant do? Like they reproduce without an off, off, uh, another parent. Is that kind of like ant IVF, AVF? I, I, I don't know. Like what's going on here? <laughs> researchers at Kyoto University have found is um, that, so the queen lays a whole bunch of eggs and then usually they end up fertilized. So like um, they use the sperm of the other ants in the colony and so they get fertilized. And so, you know, you end up with more ants, go and do the ant biddings and become soldier ants and go and dig and things like that. But occasionally, sometimes the eggs don't end up fertilized. And when this happens, the ant that didn't get fertilized, even though it should, like, in theory, it should just not grow because it doesn't have that extra set of DNA. But what we've found is they actually still grow and mature and grow up. And this ant becomes the next queen ant. That's that's really fascinating. So, like, it's almost like the queen ant is the default state and they just have that there. And if nothing else happens to it, the queen, will, the egg will hatch into a queen. But, you know, if it is fertilized by uh, other members of the colony um, who are there to help look after the queen and ensure the survival of the colony, then, you know, obviously um, they, they will hatch up to build more of the healthy colony. That, that's a really interesting example. What, what else did they manage to learn by uh, um, studying these, these ants? So we've also learned that um, part of what makes the egg the queen ant is it lacks these little holes found these um, holes, which are called micropiles. So that's where, um, so the little holes in the egg where the fertilization actually happens. And as the queen gets older, that's when she starts creating eggs without these little micropiles so that the eggs can't be fertilized. So then they become the next queen ant to take over when the old ant dies. It's kind of like uh, as the queen matures and, and gets older, they, the biology has built in a replacement strategy which is actually really clever as part of a natural cycle and also means you don't have a younger queen taking over while you're still in your prime well that's right and they tend to get banished outside of the colony when that happens and go off to found new ones what i found really fascinating about this is that um, you know the average female queen lifetime is about 11 years um which meant that when i was trying to hunt for queens uh queen ants as a kid the ants were older than me which is mind-boggling to think about <laughs> especially when you think of like insects and things like that they're in your head they're only like really they're only alive for like two or three weeks mm. i mean isn't that how long flies are alive for well yeah some flies are alive for a day which is uh terrible and poor mayflies but uh a lot of the inf- insects of course have much shorter lifespans given purely their size in proportion of everything um but you know obviously these queens and part of the colony just basically getting fed and and which have been evolved solely to breed and produce a colony. It makes sense that they would last a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any other types of animals that actually manage to reproduce asexually? I mean, it's really a fascinating method of reproduction. And um, I, I've really only heard of amoebas being the only other thing that kind of split or has a single type parent response. This has actually been seen in um, this type of asexual reproduction is actually called parthenogenesis and it has been seen in other insects 
in some lizards, and even in sharks. I, I don't. I didn't need to hear that sharks can self-reproduce. That just makes them more terrifying. Uh, it's like this is a little bit different because the clones um, then reproduce clones as well. Whereas I don't think that's what happens in sharks. But yeah, I don't want sharks just creating more sharks without having to reproduce. They could definitely take over the world. There will be another shark NATO. Wait, the NATO's the NATO part of the shark part there just got even weirder. Um, let's not bring meteorology into this. I'm having enough problems with biology first. But um, what I find really fascinating about that point is that since the queen's genetic material is just getting replicated over and over and over again, um, the queen's genetically immortal. Like that's that's amazing that the queen's um, genetic material just carries on purely unadulterated, aside from random genetic mutations. Um, that's that's amazing to think about because usually that's you physically can't have that happen. So ants, and specifically termites in Japan, uh, well done for figuring this out. Uh, I'm sure we have a lot to learn from you yet, and it will teach us about ways that we can understand how genetic material is passed on in both animal kingdom and potentially applications for us too. So, Lauren, we've talked about things being seeded from space and ant queens um, and, and brains. Um, would you really want to live in a, in a world where people are genetically immortal, just passing along the genetic materials from one person to the next? That's a really tough question because, look, I am not sure. Um, each person has their own, like, genetic deficiencies, whether it's something like, for example, my really bad eyesight or my asthma or to someone who has trouble digesting gluten, things like that. Um, I think part of what means that we survive is our genetic diversity. So if you've got self-replicating, if you've got a self-replicating species, you have less of a chance of surviving if there's some kind of natural disaster that occurs. Well, not only that, if, if some sort of predator suddenly decides or develops and it's like, yes, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that Lauren's eyesight is terrible, <laughs> then everything is wiped out and ruined forever and you have no chance of adapting because there's no other, other types of approaches, which is one of the ways that evolution works to protect everyone involved in it they um they have the different the different mechanisms and, and ones that more successful will survive if you're just limiting yourself to one option well if something comes along that challenges that you're stuffed in the same um stream though having it so that you can only reproduce if there's someone there um you need someone else to be able to reproduce that also kind of like limits your abilities what if there's some kind of disease that comes along and wipes out all people with um, all people of one sex. I mean, then we're all screwed, <laughs> or or not, um, as as the case may be. And that does also expose us to a lot of risk. Why the last man? Um, why the letter? The last man is a comic series that actually explores that in detail. Um, uh, and there's a number of other stories that also have explored that kind of concept. So yeah, there is a there is a. There, there is a more risk as well to not being able to, or requiring a partner to reproduce. Um, we're starting to overcome um, some of that difficulty with things like in vitro fertilization. Um, 
which does actually uh, lead to a whole different set of questions and it's inherently expensive and complicated, but we can do it. So if push comes to shove, we would be able to fertilize. And one of the things that we have found um, is that we are just starting to do in the UK uh, three, three donor um, fertilization, which is kind of a genetic blending and not just relying on one single donor, which means you can start to weed out some potentially deficient things that you don't want to pass on, which is a really interesting idea and concept that's on the real cutting edge of uh, biological reproductive science um, and also raises a lot of questions about um, what the best way to do that is. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we learned how an FRI machine in Harry Potter can help us better understand the brain, plus we also found out how some certain types of ants maintain their genetic immortality. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.